Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Have you ever had a conflict with someone that led to a parting of the ways? Uh, there are famous partings of the ways in uh, entertainment, the entertainment industry going all the way back, I imagine, to Lewis and Martin, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, that famous comedy duo that split up in 1956. Hard to believe that that was the year I was born, and yet I knew about that as a kid because people were still talking about it. Will they ever get back together again? But Jerry Lewis uh, was tired of Dean Martin's work habits and how he always wanted to be out golfing instead of working hard. And, and uh, Martin was tired of being Jerry Lewis' straight man, him getting all the good lines, and so they split up, never to get back together again. They had a parting of the ways. More recently were the Beatles, 1970. That's still ancient history for some of you, but uh, many of us can remember it quite well. And to this day, nobody knows exactly why the Beatles had a parting of the ways. Was it because Ringo always felt like an outsider and wanted out? Was it because Paul wanted a solo career? Was it because John was having such problems with his heroin addiction and people were tired of Yoko Ono hanging around all the time? There are all kinds of theories about why the Beatles broke up, but they had a parting of the ways and never got back together again. More recently, 2016, you had the breakup of Brangelina. Nobody thought that would ever happen. You know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, you know, they adopted all those kids. They looked like the model family. And then famously in 2016, they broke up uh, with allegations of abuse and, and uh, infidelity. And at least to this point, they haven't gotten back together again. So it looks like this parting in the ways is also permanent. You know, it's not just people in entertainment who experience a parting of the ways. We have, uh, you know, the example of Paul and Barnabas in the scriptures who had a very famous parting of the ways in Acts 15 where they had gone on one very successful missionary journey together and they were talking about going on a second and they had a severe disagreement over whether to bring John Mark with them on the next journey. And Paul said, no way. You know, he bailed out on us in the first journey. He's a mama's boy. We can't trust him. And, and Barnabas said, yeah, you know what? He deserves a second chance. And and they had such a sharp disagreement over it that they went their separate ways. They had a parting of the ways. Uh, Paul took Silas and went one direction. Barnabas took John Mark and went another direction. And, and uh, you know, that was that. You know, it's inevitable at different times in life we're going to experience a parting of the ways with someone. Hardest of all is when marriage partners experience a parting of the ways. Uh, sometimes it'll happen in the workplace, as it did for me in my last job at the seminary, where I got to a point where I could no longer agree with the direction the school was going, and I knew I had to leave. We had a parting of the ways. Maybe you've had a parting of the ways uh, with a friend over political differences or arguments over masks and vaccine mandates. 
How many of you have hidden, unfollowed, or unfriended somebody on Facebook in the last 18 months? <laughs> Almost everybody. A parting of the ways. You know, you, you might have a parting of the ways with a longtime hairdresser who you, you're just feeling she doesn't pay attention to you anymore and what you want. Or maybe your parting of the ways was with a doctor who wasn't listening to your complaints and taking you seriously. Uh, maybe you had a parting of the ways with a, a church and a pastor who you could no longer see eye to eye with. A parting of the ways can be nasty or it can be amicable. It all depends on how the parties involved handle themselves. If you have to part ways, it, it helps to have someone be the bigger person. To keep a parting of the ways from becoming a bloodbath, it helps if one of the parties is a person of mature faith, even better if both are. It takes someone who realizes that there are more important things in life than getting one's way. That's what Abram shows us in our next installment of A Stumbling Faith, our, our series in the book of Genesis where we're looking at the life of Abraham. In week one of the series, Abram made a great start. You know, God called him to go to a country uh, that he would show him, and Abram got up and went. He took a great step of faith. Uh, last week, Abram didn't do so well. He kind of stumbled in his faith when he lied to protect himself instead of trusting God to protect him as God had promised. Well, in this installment, week three, he's walking strong again as he enters into a conflict with his nephew, Lot, and has to part ways with him. But the way he handles himself has a lot to teach us about how faith functions in a conflict and how people who walk by faith have a unique ability to diffuse strife. We're in Genesis 13 today, a story presented in five scenes, which together teaches one really important lesson about our walk of faith and how we can thrive in the midst of conflict. So let's dive into the story together. Beginning with scene one, uh, every, every uh, story has a setting, right? Well, the setting of this story we'll call back in Canaan. Back in Canaan. So it says in verse one, So Abram went from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the Negev. The Negev is the desert that separates Egypt from Israel, from Canaan. Remember, there had been a famine in Canaan. Abram had taken the whole family down into Egypt for a while because there was more food there. And it was there that Abram had lied to Pharaoh about Sarai being his, his uh, sister instead of admitting that she was his wife. And he did that out of fear that they might kill him to have her. And, and when Pharaoh found out about it, he sent Abram packing back to Canaan. Abram was well-to-do when he went to Egypt and he left Egypt with even more riches because of Pharaoh's favorable treatment of him while he was there. And it says in verse 2, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He's already experiencing the, the promise of God's blessing. God said, Go to the land I will show you and I will bless you. Well, he's experienced that blessing materially at least. And it says in verse 3, And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel <clears throat> to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So he essentially retraces his steps back to, to Canaan from Egypt, and he 
ends up at that place where he had camped at first when he came to Canaan, in that place between Bethel and Ai, where he'd built an altar, and he once again calls upon the name of the Lord. And some commentators believe what this is saying is that in a time, in an era, when people worshipped many gods, Abram was giving his worship exclusively to the Lord, the God he had followed to Canaan, the God who was proving true to his promises. And you might say, well, so far, so good, right? I mean, Abram had kind of embarrassed himself down there in Egypt, but God caused him to prosper in spite of it. In fact, both Abram and Lot were doing very well, so much so that it was becoming a problem. And here's where the plot thickens, as they say. Uh, scene two is the conflict. Every good story has a conflict, right? Every good story has some kind of tension in it that has to get resolved. Well, the conflict here is not enough room. Not enough room. Verse five says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for the possessions were so great they could not dwell together. This kind of reminds me of our girls who happily shared a bedroom when they were little. You know, their little clothes all fit nicely in their little closet, and, and their toys and stuffed animals were manageable enough that they could all exist in the same room. But as they grew older, we could see this was going to be a problem, that their wardrobes were growing, and they were no longer going to fit in that little closet, and they would have very different ideas about how that room should be maintained. One wanted to paint it periwinkle, and the other wanted to paint it forest green, and this just wasn't going to work. You know, they want more privacy, you know, when they talked on the phone and whatnot. And we knew that, that we were headed for a crisis here. So I had to get busy remodeling our den downstairs and turning it into a fourth bedroom. It took me only two years, but I, I got it done in time, just in the nick of time. Uh, because if we were to survive having two teenage girls in the house, it was time for them to part company. Well, that's pretty much what's happening here in verse 6. Abram's herds of livestock have grown, and so have lots, so much so that when they return to their old pasture land between Bethel and Ai, there isn't enough room for them all. If too many animals graze the land, the animals can, can overgraze to the point of making that land unusable. Too many animals is not good for the pasture, and it will starve the, the livestock. And so no wonder, verse 7 says, and there was strife, conflict between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. The place was just too crowded. You know, the Canaanites were already there. They had their cities, and then they would have their animals in pastured outside of their cities. And then the Perizzites were believed to be kind of rural people, and they had towns and villages here and there, and they would have had some pasture lands for their animals around each of their towns or villages. And, and then the nomads, like Abram and Lot, had to take what's left, and what was left wasn't enough. And so you can imagine how, out of a need to find sufficient pasturage and, and water for their livestock, this would bring the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot into conflict. They would be, you know, kind of out there saying, hey, we were here first. We were going to pasture here. No, 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 we got here first. You guys go somewhere else, you know. And then they'd go back to their bosses. Do you know what Abram's men are doing? Do you know what Lot's men are doing? And pretty soon, Abram and Lot are going to be in each other's faces. You tell your guys. No, you tell your guys. But Abram... Being a man of faith, 
who knows what God has promised and can see how God is blessing, Abram takes a different approach. And that brings us to scene three in our story, Abram's offer. Abram's offer is simply, you choose first. You choose first. In verse eight, it says, then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. I want you to notice two things about how Abram engages this conflict situation. First, he puts a high, high value on his relationship with Lot. He says, look, we've got to be careful not to let this problem between our herdsmen come between us. We're family. We can't, we can't have this strife between us. We've got to get this figured out. Now, the other thing I want you to notice about how Abram engages this conflict situation is that he turns the conflict into a problem-solving opportunity. Think about this. Instead of pointing a finger of blame at Lot and his herdmen, he invites Lot in as a full participant in finding a solution. Okay, here's a pro tip, right? If you find yourself in a conflict situation, see if you can turn that conflict situation into a problem to solve. And so you're saying, okay, we got to admit there's a problem. And once we've admitted there's a problem, let's define carefully what the real problem is, and then let's sit down and solve the problem together. So you admit the problem. Our herdsmen are fussing with each other out there. Uh, spell out the real problem. Well, there isn't enough pasturage to support all our flocks and herds. And then Abram invites Lot to come into the conversation, and he proposes a solution. But he lets Lot come into this conversation as a, as a free and willing participant. He says in verse 9, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me, and if you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. I want you to notice how Lot is invited in to be a participant in solving this problem. It's not dictated to him. Abram could have pulled rank as the senior statesman and said, look, I'm the uncle, you're the nephew, here's what you're going to do, Lot. But he didn't do that. Instead, he makes a proposal, and he gives Lot a choice. The solution is to be found in the realization that they don't both have to stay here, camped between Bethel and I. There's not enough room there, but there is a lot of land available. They just need to move their flocks and herds farther apart, and there should be plenty of pasturage for them all. So Abram says, you go whatever direction seems best to you, and I'll go the other way. You choose first. Do you see how incredibly generous this is? Abram could have insisted that he go first. He could have pulled rank. He could have said, look, I'm the patriarch. I'm the uncle. You're the nephew. I get to go first. But how would Lot have felt about that? No matter what choice Abram had made, Lot would have felt like, oh, he ripped me off. You know, he, he chose first, and I had to take what was left over, and, and he's just looking out for himself. You know, it's, it's inevitable that Lot would have felt that way. But by letting Lot go first, Abram was not only taking that argument away, but he was building goodwill with Lot. Even though they'd be living farther apart from one another, they wouldn't be at war with each other. It's kind of like dividing a candy bar, you know, among kids. You know, what's the fair way to divide a candy bar? Well, someone said to me, the best way to divide a candy bar is you have the first kid take the knife and cut it, and the second kid chooses the first piece, right? Because if, if 
you know that the other kid's going to choose first. You're going to be really, really careful to divide that thing perfectly down the middle. Well, Abram says to Lot, you go first. You, you choose first. We'll consider how Abram could afford to be so generous in a few minutes. But for now, I just want you to notice the generosity of Abram's offer. Isn't that the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I'll go to the left. You go first. And so, in scene four, Lot makes his choice. And Lot's choice is, I'll go east. I'll go east. In verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered like the garden of the Lord. It was, it was beautiful, like the Garden of Eden, Moses writes. And it was like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. That was another beautiful, fertile, well-watered valley near the Nile River down in Egypt. And then he adds in parenthesis, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So we're talking about what the Jordan Valley looked like before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a little hint of more to come. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. I'm told that there's a high point near Bethel where one can apparently overlook the Jordan River Valley. And in those days, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, that land was beautiful, was verdant, it was highly desirable. You know, but the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah that's mentioned here is a foretaste of What's to come? What appeals to Lot in the moment, apparently, is to be horribly short-lived. But for the moment, compared to rocky, arid Canaan, the Jordan Valley was beautiful, like the Garden of Eden, like the Valley of Zoar. The writer says, you know, it's like sheep grazing heaven compared to Canaan. You know, where in Canaan, if you want to water your flocks, you've got to go look for a spring or dig a well. There, you know, there's plenty of water, plenty of pasturage. And so Lot says, I'll go east. Now, most commentators look at this and they point out the, the selfishness of Lot's choice. He makes a choice here that is apparently self-serving, grabbing for himself what is clearly the best. It's little to his credit that he takes full advantage of his uncle's generosity this way. But at least one commentator points out that God, in his providence, is using this moment to remove Lot from the land. And, and by moving away from Canaan to the east, because remember, Canaan was being given to, to Abram's descendants, not to Lot's descendants. And by moving Lot away from Canaan to the east, God was removing from the land Lot's descendants, who would become the Ammonite and Edomite peoples, some of Israel's bitterest rivals in the region in years to come. Lot says, I'll go east. That's what looks best to me. You'll have to make do with scrubby old Canaan, Uncle Abram. And it, that's what Abram does. Verse 12 says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. While Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Abram settles in Canaan, where he's supposed to be, the land that God has promised to give his descendants. And Lot not only moves to the valley, but he moves deep into the valley near Sodom, which should send up some red flags, because verse 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
So the picture we get of Lot is of one who not only makes a selfish choice at the expense of his very generous uncle, but a choice that puts him and his family in spiritual peril because he's choosing to live in a neighborhood where people are known to be wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Maybe it didn't look like a big deal to him at the moment, but as Randy Elkhorn puts it, immorality is the cumulative product of small indulgences and minuscule compromises, the immediate consequences of which were at the time indiscernible. So Lot makes his choice and goes east. More about that will be revealed in chapter 19. Now we come to the climax of our story. Scene five, Abram's reward. Abram's reward, it's all yours. It's all yours, Abram. So Lot looks like he's taken advantage of his uncle's generosity, but look to what happens in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. That's an important thing because back in verse 10, it said when, when Abram made the offer to Lot, Lot lifted his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley. He lifted his eyes and took what looked best to him. This time it's the Lord saying to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Lot looked east and said, that looks good, I'll take that. God says to Abram, I want you to look in every direction. Look north, look south, look east, look west, because I'm giving it all to you and your offspring. Lot lifted his eyes in self-interest and took what looked good to him. Abram is instructed to lift his eyes with faith in God's promise. What he has lost is more than offset by what God bestows on him. Better that God should give the land to Abram than that he should take anything for himself. And not only does God promise to give Abram land, but also to make him a great nation in that land. Look at verse 16 where it says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, which nobody can, your offspring also can be counted. In other words, uh, you're going to have so many offspring, you can't count them. Abram. Here God reiterates and expands upon the promise that he made back in chapter 12 and verse 2 to make Abram into a great nation. You're going to have so many offspring, Abram, that they can't all be counted. What a challenge this must have been to to the faith of a childish old man. Now as if to take his mind off of what Lot has taken for himself, God invites Abram now to roam about Canaan and see all that God is giving him. He says in verse 17, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so rather than moaning about how Lot has ripped him off, Abram is invited to freely roam about in cheerful faith. And he does so until he arrives at that place in Canaan that will become a kind of family headquarters for the next several generations of Abram's family. It says in verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the third time that Abram has built an altar to the Lord, which signals that he is still walking by faith in the promises of God. So there you have it, five scenes. An interesting story. What is it all up to? I think here's the bottom line. 
It's telling us that a person of faith can afford to be generous. A person of faith can afford to be generous, even in a conflict situation, maybe even especially in a conflict situation. A person of faith is able to take a different approach than others in a conflict situation. Instead of digging in one's heels and demanding one's rights, a person of faith can afford to be generous because that person rests in the care and the provision of an almighty God. I love the story about a boy and his mom who went to a local store and the kindly proprietor of the store had a big jar of candy on the counter and when they were all done with their transaction, the man held out the jar of candy to the boy and said, take a handful. But the boy kind of timidly hung back until the man reached into the jar and, and gave him a handful of candy. When they got outside the store, the mom said to the boy, what was going on in there? Why'd you suddenly get shy when he offered you to take a handful of candy? The boy said, because his hand is much bigger than mine. <laughs> hey, look, as a person of faith, I don't have to grab for all I think I have coming to me because I have a God whose hand is much bigger than mine. In a situation where tensions are rising high and people are lining up on either side demanding what's theirs, the person who walks by faith can be used to diffuse a conflict. That person doesn't have to grab and compete with the rest, but can be generous knowing that God has promised to supply all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Our God says, I know what you need before you even ask. Follow me, and I will give you whatever you need. Our God has already given the life of his son on the cross to save us from the, the guilt and grip of sin. Can't he be counted on to provide whatever else we need? We have a God who is able to make all grace abound to us so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need, we can abound in every good work. A person of faith can afford to be generous. I love a story about Charles Spurgeon who had an orphanage in London and he needed to raise 300 pounds to, to keep his orphans fed. So he made a preaching journey to Bristol, another city in England, and he preached in three of the largest Baptist churches in the city hoping to raise 300, or 300 pounds for his orphans. Well, he was successful in doing that, and the third night that he was there, and, and you know all the offerings had come in, he had his 300 pounds for his orphans. He went to bed at night, and he couldn't sleep, because the Lord said to him, take those 300 pounds and give them to George Mueller. Now, George Mueller was another pastor right there in the city of Bristol, who also had an orphanage. Now think of, if you had been George Mueller, how you might have looked at Spurgeon coming to your city and raising money for his orphans in London when your own kids were in need. That could have created some conflict, don't you think? But here, the Lord was saying to Spurgeon, take those 300 pounds and give them to George Mueller. And, and you know, Spurgeon kind of fussed a little bit with the Lord and said, but Lord, I need that money for my orphans down in London. And the Lord said, give those 300 pounds to Mueller. And it wasn't until... Spurgeon said, okay, Lord, I will, that he was finally able to get to sleep. So the next day he got up, he went and he found George Mueller, and when he walked in, uh, George Mueller was on his knees before an open Bible praying. And Spurgeon put his hand on Mueller's shoulder and said, George, the Lord told me I'm to give you these 300 pounds for your orphans. 
Mueller looked up and he said, oh, dear Spurgeon, I was just praying for that very amount just this moment. And the two men rejoiced together in the provision of God for the orphans of Bristol. Spurgeon got home and sitting on his desk was an envelope that had been sent to him. And he opened it up and there was a a note inside that said, uh, the 315 pounds in this envelope are to be used for your orphans. To which Spurgeon said, the Lord has paid me back and with interest. A person of faith can afford to be generous. Conflicts have a way of dissipating when a person walking by faith says, you take the first pick. Faith grows when we stop demanding our fair share and step back and watch how God supplies. God takes us by surprise when we say to others, you go first. When people look at you, what do they see? when tensions are rising and strife is escalating? Do they see an opponent spoiling for a fight, getting ready to grab for their piece of the pie? Or do they see a generous person of faith who trusts in the provision of a generous God? Do they see someone who demands to get what's theirs? Or do they see someone who resembles Jesus, generously giving of oneself to gain what only God can give? Let's pray. Lord, your word tells us that that the things that we see in Scripture were written to teach us so that by them and by the encouragement of your Spirit, we might have hope. And Lord, we are challenged by the example of Abram today, but we also go away from your word hopeful people Living in a world where conflict is all around us and people are fussing with each other and there is strife at every turn. And yet, Lord, you show us a different way. You show us that as people of your promise, we don't need to grab for ourselves. We don't need to to insist on what's coming to us. But rather, we can step back and trust in the provision of an amazingly generous God. Lord, help us to walk by faith, the way we see Abram walking by faith. Help help us to trust you more. Help us to to understand that that Abram's God is our God, that that even as you were true to all that you promised Abram, you will be true to all you've promised us, and your promises to us are many and great. Lord, may we be people In a world that is increasingly selfish and fussy, may we be people who look a lot like Jesus, willing to give much of ourselves to gain what only you can give. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.